No. <laughs> Would you turn in your Bibles to Second Corinthians chapter thirteen? You can probably tell I I have a cold or have had one. I'm still kind of I'm on the mend getting over it, but you can tell it affects my voice. So I'm set up with water. I've got everything I need, and we'll. Uh, Appreciate extra prayer this morning, too, on your part. We're going to be looking at this last chapter of Second Corinthians. We've spent several months in this book over the winter, and I hope that you have enjoyed it. I hope that it's been a rich study for you. Um, I have really enjoyed working through this. Of course, I'm a little bit like whatever book I'm preaching on is my favorite book, you know, at the time. Uh, but I just love God's Word and digging into it. And one of the reasons we do go through books of the Bible is to really encourage you to do the same in your personal study. And it's kind of a model of how do we do this? How do we read things in context and see and apply God's Word to our life today? And so that's what we're going to do again this morning as we come to the end of this particular letter. And let me pray for us, and then I'm going to read part of the Scripture this morning. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you today, we again... Give you thanks for your word. It is powerful. It is life changing. When we hear it and by your Holy Spirit, we begin to apply it to our lives. And we see you work in us those things that are pleasing to you, those things that make us more and more like Christ in our thoughts and our actions. Your word gives us direction, counsel, wisdom, strength. It convicts us of sin. It transforms our thoughts and our lives. And so, Father, we pray that you would do that today. And as I think about this particular book, too, and how we have read how your power is made perfect in weakness, I pray, Lord, that my weakness today would not get in the way of what you want to say, but that by your Spirit and by your power, you would move among us. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the themes that we have looked at in this particular letter is the theme that God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is sufficient in our afflictions. It is sufficient in our weakness, in our trials. God's grace is sufficient to give us the wisdom we need for decisions. God's grace is sufficient in our marriage to help us to grow and be strong in that area of life. God's grace is sufficient for the challenges we meet at work or school. God's grace is sufficient to provide for our needs. And whatever challenge you may be facing today, God's grace is able to give you what you need. It is a matter of faith on our part, of trusting Him, taking hold of His promises and His Word, and then applying it to our life, waiting and watching for God to act to see what He's going to do. In this particular chapter, Paul is going to end his letter with some final warnings to the church at Corinth. His concern all along has been their acceptance of false teachers among them. And he urges them to take care of this problem, to address address the situation before he comes to them on this next visit. Because he would rather have them step up and do this and take care of it themselves as leaders in the church rather than it be something that he has to deal with strongly when he comes. And so he sends these final instructions to them. 
You see, God's desire for the church is that we would be healthy and holy in His sight. That we as a church would be that bride of Christ that is healthy in terms of our relationship with Him and relationships with one another, and holy, walking with Him in righteousness and truth. By spiritual health, we mean things like this, that we would have healthy relationships where we are getting along with one another in the body of Christ. There's harmony, there's love, there's a spirit of unity as we work together on what God has called us to do. That the church would be marked by healthy teaching, sound doctrine, grounded in the Scriptures, growing in the truth of God's Word. That we would have a healthy ministry where we are seeing people come to know Christ, where we are serving one another and using our gifts both in the body of Christ and in the community, and where we are making disciples. And where you see that happening, there is health and there is vitality in the church. And that the church would also be marked by healthy living. That personally, in our own relationship with God, that we would be growing in godliness, growing in Christ-likeness, obedient to the Word, and growing in our faith and our trust in God. But the only way that we can be healthy and holy as a church is to walk with God and to be honest about our sin. And when we see our sin, whether it's in the church or in our own life personally, that we would deal with that in an appropriate way. So we're going to look at these points that Paul lays out here, and we'll walk through this chapter section by section. Number one, he tells us that we, make, we must care for the health of the church. And we find that in verses 1 to 4. He says, This will be my third visit to you, and every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time, and I now repeat it while absent. On my return I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. And likewise, we are weak in him, Yet by God's power, we will live with him to serve you. Paul is warning the church that sin must be dealt with in order for the body to be healthy. If the problems plaguing the church at Corinth continued, the church would die. Do you remember what Paul was concerned about? back in the last chapter. It's been a couple weeks since we were there. But if you go back to verses 20 and 21, you'll see Paul's concern. He said, I'm afraid that when I come to you, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you, and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of their impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they have indulged. I mean, now think about that as a church. 
Is this the kind of church that you would want to visit or join? A church that's marked by quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance, all of those things? I mean, I don't think so. Most of us, if we knew that was going on in the church and it was kind of rampant and obvious for everybody to see, we'd, we'd go down the street and find the next church if we could or take a look at some other place. And that's what was happening at the church of Corinth. And Paul is saying, you know, if this continues, this church is not going to survive. It was a mess, really. It would be a very difficult church to pastor. But it was time for the leaders of that church to step up. They had been warned. Paul says, this is going to be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. You know, I've given you the warning. It's kind of like once, twice, three strikes, and you guys are out. You guys are out. If you don't deal with this, we're going to come and we will take charge of the situation and we will take the appropriate measures in terms of church discipline. Paul writes, On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier, but who have not yet repented from that sin. He talks about how they uh, looked at Christ in one sense as being crucified in weakness, yet now he lives by the power of God. He says that in the same way that Christ is powerful among you, he is Lord and King. When we come, we will not be weak either, but we will deal with the situation that has come up. Sin must be dealt with in the body or it can destroy the whole church. You see, sin is to our spiritual health what cancer is to our physical health. We all know what cancer is like. That cancer is a serious physical illness or disease. We probably, all of us, know people who have died of cancer. We know that that can be life-threatening. And yet, because of the strides in treating cancer today, if it is detected early... I mean, most forms of cancer are treatable. And you can deal with those things if they are caught early. In the same way, sin is much easier to deal with in a person's life if it is caught early. If people will acknowledge it or recognize habits in their life that may be sinful habits that they need to change and they recognize that and they deal with that right away, it is much easier to take care of it early than it is far down the road. And with cancer treatment today, one of the things that you'll hear, people will talk about risk factors. People will talk about, you know, the kinds of things that you can do in terms of diet and exercise that can help prevent you from getting cancer. It's not a total prevention, but it can help in those areas to lower your risk. In the same way, we in the church talk about prevention when it comes to sin. I mean, the best way to prevent sin is to be focusing on our relationship with God, make sure that we're walking with Him, growing in our faith, that we're in fellowship with one another, because if our relationship with God is strong and healthy, it's much easier to deal with those things that come up, the temptations we face or the challenges that we face in life. It's why also when it comes to marriage, we encourage couples, you know, we require premarital counseling, encourage you to come in, take our marriage class or things like that, because we know that marriage can be challenging at times. There are times when you will deal with conflict and you need to know how to do that in a godly way. 
uh, because you're two people that are different, have different thoughts and ideas at times, and they can come into conflict. So how do we deal with those things and work through challenges? The prevention can keep us from dealing with more serious matters later. And I think about that in our church, too. It's one of the reasons we put a great deal of emphasis on our mission statement or core values, the things that mark a healthy church and why we teach on those things. It's why we teach on how to handle conflict in the church. And we talk about it, doing it in an appropriate way so that little problems don't become big problems. And it works. It works. When you build into the life of a church or kind of the DNA of a church those tools to deal with sin in an appropriate way, God uses that in our lives and we grow. Things that can affect the church uh, that are serious sins are sins like gossip or slander that can hurt relationships. Sexual immorality, critical spirits or factions where people begin to build sort of little groups within the church. That's not a good thing to do. Unforgiveness and pride or arrogance. People seeking power or using positions to their advantage. All of those can be deadly in the church. Last night I was reading in the latest issue of Christianity Today how serious this problem of false teachers and false pastors is in the nation of Ghana. In Ghana, Africa, there are men who have worked their way into churches or started churches claiming to be pastors who are not qualified, they are not godly. Some of them are criminals. Some of them are shamans who see the church as a way that they perhaps can have some financial gain. And so they work their way into it, and it is hurting the witness of the church. So much so that the government has asked the church to get its act together. One of the reasons for the problem is that they have not had any kind of a sense of credentialing or requirements to be a pastor. And so they're looking at that whole thing again. Of what does ordination mean? What does it mean to be credentialed for ministry? What kind of qualifications should there be in a pastor whom God has called to serve in ministry? The problem of false teaching can destroy a church if it is not dealt with. So how do we deal with sin in the church? Again, we go to a passage like Matthew 18. And there Jesus gave us these instructions. Where first of all, if your brother sins against you, you go to him in private, one-on-one, and you work it through. If he doesn't listen to you, then you would take along one or two others who go with you to confirm or to help resolve the situation and work it through. If he listens to you, that's great, and it ends there. If he doesn't listen to you, then you may need to take it to the church, which can be the board or a larger group of the church as a whole. And finally, if he doesn't listen to you and repent when the church deals with it, then you are to treat him as you would an unbeliever, as a pagan or a tax collector, Jesus said. You see, he's stating some principles here about dealing with sin. You do it directly. You do it in the smallest group that you can in terms of keeping it confined. If it's a private sin, you deal with it privately. If it's a public sin, you deal with it publicly. And you work through those things because that makes restoration, repentance, easier to deal with as well. And you know, when I look back over the years of being here, 25 years, I'm very thankful that we've not had to do this often in terms of church discipline, but we have had to on occasion. 
and we are a healthier church because of it. You have heard me say that when a church caters to dysfunctional people, it will become a dysfunctional church. That's really true. If a church ignores sin and kind of tiptoes around it or ignores it and uh, lets it become part of the church in an unhealthy way, that church is going to be unhealthy. I mean, you're going to develop and create kind of those uh, critical spirits that can affect the whole spirit of a church. But if a church follows what God has said and deals with things appropriately and sensitively as you work through these issues, God uses that. And church discipline can actually be a way that He disciples us and we learn through it. We learn about love and forgiveness, about the importance of God's Word, and we grow in our spiritual health. So on one level, we need to deal with sin in the church. But secondly, we also need to care for our own spiritual health. Sin must be dealt with personally, and it is much better when we can do it in our own lives where we recognize our sin, we're honest about it, and we confess it to God. Paul writes in verses 5 through 10, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith, and test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong. Not that people will see that we have stood the test, but that you will do what is right even though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong. And our prayer is for your perfection. This is why I write these things when I am absent that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority, the authority the Lord gave me for building you up and not for tearing you down. Paul calls us to examine ourselves. We each have a responsibility to deal with the sin in our own life. And the problem here in the church is that they were examining Paul. I mean, Paul was the one that was really under scrutiny. He was the one being attacked by these false teachers, and so others were starting to question his authority and his character. And it wasn't Paul that they should have been looking at. They should have been looking at their own hearts and looking at the character of these men who had come into the church. The word test that's used here in verse 5, at least in the... New International Version, the word test, is the same word that is used in 1 Corinthians 11.28 regarding the Lord's Supper. In those instructions on the Lord's Supper, Paul says that a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. You know, he's telling us that when we come to communion before we take it, we should examine our heart. Is there any sin in us, anything that we need to confess? We do that. On the Sundays when we take communion, you know, I make that a part of what I say. There's an invitation for all who know Christ to come. There's the encouragement to examine our own hearts and confess our sin and then take of the bread and of the cup. And so Paul's using that same word here and he's saying to the Corinthians, examine yourselves and see if you are in the faith. Do you really know Christ? Have you really made that commitment to Jesus and asked Him to be your Savior and Lord? Have you surrendered your heart to Him wholeheartedly? 
where you have said, Jesus, I want you to take control of the throne of my life. I give myself fully to you. And then he wants us to examine our heart, like the Scripture says when the psalmist prayed, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test my anxious thoughts and see if there's any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God, search my heart. I want to make sure that I'm right with you. And when we become aware of our sin, then the Holy Spirit brings that to mind and we are to repent. We're to turn from it. We're to have a change of heart or attitude regarding our sin. And we're to not only admit it to God, but we are to quit it. Admit it and quit it and change in terms of the direction that we are headed. Well, what was going on here was that, again, they were looking at Paul. And you know, sometimes it's very easy for us to look at another person's life and see their sin instead of seeing the sin in ourselves. But we need to take care of our own sin first. And Jesus talked about that very clearly in his Sermon on the Mount. I'd like us to look at uh, Matthew 7, verses 1 to 5. Jesus said, no, go back to the, we'll start on the previous slide. There you go. Jesus said, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I have a feeling that when Jesus shared that that day, there was some laughter in the crowds there. It's a pretty funny picture when you think about it. He knows our tendency to judge others, And, you know, the problem with judging, I mean, we all have to make judgments about things all the time, about is this a right or a wrong? Is this a good thing to do or not to do? Is this something uh, that we should follow or pursue or not pursue? I mean, we all have to make judgments and choices. He isn't saying don't do that. But he's saying don't be a hypocrite in terms of applying one standard to another person and a different standard to yourself. For example... Sometimes we can do that, and we can say things like this, you know, if I'm a little crabby or irritable, well, that's because I wasn't feeling well, and you need to make an allowance for that. But if somebody else is crabby, well, that's because they're a bad person. Okay? That's an unfair judgment, and we can sometimes do things like that. Do you ever get, you know, in a driving situation where you're behind somebody who's going slower than you'd like to go? You know, and if it's you at the front of the line and you made a wrong turn and you're kind of confused, you would say, well, you know, I wasn't familiar or or I was confused or you make some allowance for yourself. But if somebody else is slowing you down on a day when you're in a hurry, you know, it's real easy to think the guy's an idiot. Why doesn't he just go faster? And And we do things like that. We make these kind of hypocritical judgments. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. He's saying, you know, it's like a guy who's got this two-by-four in his eye trying to take a tweezer and pick out a speck out of his brother's eye. He's saying, deal with the sin in your own life first. We've used the peacemaker training in our church. And in the peacemaker training, 
there are four steps that they share for conflict resolution, and they are these. That we are to glorify God in dealing with our conflict. Secondly, we're to get the log out of our own eye. Third, we're to gently restore one another when we confront sin. And fourth, we are to go and be reconciled. Those principles are so good. It's saying, you know, if two people are in conflict, you both want to make a commitment that we want to honor God in this situation and how we deal with it. Better to be wrong than to do something that would hurt the reputation of Christ or His church. Secondly, we're going to look at our own part in the conflict. What is it that I have done that may have contributed to this situation? Be honest. Admit that. You know, if you can do that when you are dealing with another person, you can say, you know what, I was wrong. Man, that just softens things. It just changes the whole spirit or tone of a conflict. And then gently restore. That's from Galatians 6.1 that says, Look into yourselves, lest you too may be tempted. I mean, you who are spiritual should restore a brother gently because, you know what, you could be in that same situation. And so be honest. Recognize your own limitations and weakness and your own ability to sin and go to a brother or sister with gentleness to restore them. That's the goal. And then that last point about go and be reconciled, work it through until there is understanding or agreement. When that happens in the body of Christ and people know how to do that, it is just such a joy to see that taking place. It is how we grow in our relationship with Him and how we take care of things and keep them small. If each of us would do that, we could take care of just about all of the problems we deal with in the church. I don't say 100% of the problems because not all of the problems are relational. Not all of them deal with sin. There are problems and challenges that we face in churches that have to do with growth or have to do with health issues too. Uh, They're not just all sin issues. And so here Paul is writing to this church. He wants them to be healthy and holy. He wants them to deal with the issue of false teachers, but he also wants them to deal with the sins in their own life and to continue to grow in Christ. In fact, in verse 9 he says, We are praying for your perfection. Now how's that for setting the bar high? We're praying for your perfection. You know, Paul wanted them to test themselves, make sure they're in the faith as a believer. He wanted them to do the right thing and not the wrong thing. Be careful in the decisions and choices you are making. But then he prayed for their perfection. Uh, you can go, a better word for it would really be restoration or completion. This word um, perfection, as it's used here, really means to be restored in a relationship or to bring to maturity. And that's why I think a better translation would be that idea of restoration. He's praying for that, and he's praying for their maturity in the faith. It is the idea of being healthy and holy. Paul wanted to see their relationships restored, their sin confessed, and their faith mature. Now that's a great thing. You see, the Scripture can tell us how to deal with our sin, but it's up to us to actually do it. You know, it can tell us everything that we need to do about how to do it, but it's up to us to put it into practice and to do it. Nobody else can confess your sin for you. Nobody else can reconcile you to another brother. You need to be willing to do that. 
to forgive or to let go of the hurt or to take that first step to go and talk to someone. In Matthew 5:23 and 24, again on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this. He said, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, and first go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. He's saying, say, you know, you're in church, you're coming to the point for the offering, you're going to put it in the plate, and God makes you aware of a conflict, of sin, of something you need to take care of between your brother. He's saying, go take care of that first before you put your offering in the plate. Why? Because God cares more about your heart than He does your gift. And he wants the heart to be right in order for the gift to be right. What's interesting about this verse, you know, is if you read it again and you look at that, when he says, first, go and be reconciled to your brother, he doesn't say there, first, go and talk to your best friend about the situation. He doesn't say, first, go and talk to your pastor and maybe he can fix it. He doesn't say, first go to your mom or dad, and maybe they can fix it and take care of this. Now, there are times when, as a child especially, it is right for you to go to your mom and dad, and you can learn from them, and they can help you. I remember a situation once with one of our boys that will remain unnamed which one it was, but one of our boys one time had been playing at a friend's house, and he had taken something, a toy that wasn't his. And he was at home, and, you know, he knew it. He knew it was wrong. And he was, he was real young. And so what is he doing? He's playing in the closet with this toy. Because he knows it's not his. And he can't really play with that out in the open because, you know, mom and dad are going to see and know. But, you know, as a parent, I mean, you just know when your kids are doing something. And so, you know, here he is. Uh, you know, why are you in the closet? You know, <laughs> now what? You know, and, and when you find him, and he confesses, you know, and the whole thing comes out, you know, he's feeling bad. And so as a parent, it was a great opportunity to teach a lesson to say, you know what, you need to go back to your friend, return it, and say, I was wrong, and ask for forgiveness. It was actually good for both kids to hear that and to work that through. Life lessons that you hope learned young will establish godly patterns going forward. Because we want to deal with sin early on. We want to take care of those things in our own life so that we learn the joy of forgiveness and the freedom that comes from being right with God. Third, aim for health and holiness. You know, this is a great way to end the book on this note. You see, Paul's desire in this whole letter has been that this church should be healthy and holy in God's sight. That's God's desire for our church today, that we would be healthy and holy. In verses 11 to 14, he says this, Finally, brothers, goodbye. Aim for perfection. Listen to my appeal. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints send their greetings. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. There are five commands that are given in verse 11. And I actually like the way the New American Standard 
um, translates it a little bit better than the NIV. The first command is the command to rejoice. I mean, that's what the Greek word there is. And I'm not totally sure why the NIV chose the word goodbye. I mean, it can be used as a farewell. But the word here is to rejoice, just like in Philippians 4, when Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say it, rejoice. He's saying to the Corinthians, I want you to rejoice. I want you to experience God's joy to the full in your life. And I pray that you would be a people that are always rejoicing. Secondly, I want you to be made complete. I want you to be restored in your relationship with one another. I want you to mature in your faith. Third, be comforted by God's Spirit. Be comforted and encouraged in your walk with Him. Be like-minded, united in your faith and purpose and ministry. And live in peace with one another, in harmony. Do that, and the God of peace will be with you. Now take a look at that list. If you were looking for a church, and you remember that previous list of the factions and the gossip and the slander and the anger and the critical spirit and all those things, and you put that up against this list to rejoice, to be maturing and comforted and like-minded and living in peace, which church would you rather be a part of? I mean, all of us would say, hey, I, I want to be in, in this church instead. I want to be in a church that is growing in Christ, that's obedient to the faith, that understands the mission, what God has called us to, and to be working on that together. That's a good description of a healthy church. Do this, and the God of love and peace will be with you. He tells them to greet one another with a holy kiss. The commentator said that's probably the first time in history that that instruction was given. Uh, It's an interesting instruction to say here at the end of this letter, but it was a cultural thing for them. In my family, I come from a Scandinavian background and a long line of handshakers. We're not really huggers as a family by nature. We're handshakers. When I married into Gail's family, half of her family is Italian in background. They still do this. You know, they, they greet one another with a hug and one of those kind of air kisses on both sides of the cheek, you know, kind of thing. I, I had to learn how to do that and which way to lean first so you don't smash a nose, you know, and you just, you get that right and, and you do this. And, um, it's interesting. We were talking about that. Not all in her family do that, but part of the Italian side does that and it's a cultural thing. And so here Paul was saying that. And why was he saying that? Because to do that meant you were part of the family. And I think in every culture you find out what is it that's appropriate to show that you are welcome in this place. In our culture, you know, it's why we do a handshake or why we do a hug or we welcome people into the family of Christ because we want them to feel like they belong. And that's what Paul is saying here. And then he ends it all with this benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It is a Trinitarian benediction. All three members of the Trinity are mentioned here. And remember again, the word Trinity is not used in Scripture, and so sometimes people have challenged that idea. But the idea of the Trinity is taught. The doctrine of the Trinity is taught in Scripture. And this is one of those examples. That we have Jesus, God the Father, 
and God the Holy Spirit, all three mentioned in this blessing. Because everything in our faith stands or falls in terms of our, our conviction and our belief and our trust in God. It is God who gives us the strength to live a holy life. It's God who can make us healthy as a church. It's God who helps us to deal with sin in our own life and in the body of Christ so that we might become all that He intends us to be. And so this is the blessing that God has given to us as well. Aim for perfection. Aim for health and holiness. There's a story I want to end with that kind of gives a little picture of this. This fall, our Statue of Liberty in the United States is going to be 125 years old. It was built in the year 1886 by a man named Frederick Bartholdi of France. It was given the United States as a gift, as a symbol of our liberty, our freedom for all who entered this land. And it has stood there through now 125 years. That's pretty amazing. And when you look at the Statue of Liberty, one of the things that amazed me when I've seen the pictures of it and the details is that Frederick Bartholdi must have been a perfectionist of sorts. You know, that, that statue is quite tall. I don't know exactly how many feet it rises above the harbor there in New York City. But at the time that it was built, you know, there weren't airplanes. There weren't things, you know, that were going to be flying over the Statue of Liberty. And yet Bartholdi was very careful to complete the work all the way from the bottom to the top of her head. And so on the top of her head, above the crown, where no one hardly would ever see it, um, he did very fine detail even on her hair. You know, it's not blank. There's no bald spot there. You know, there's nothing like that. He finished the work. He did it with great detail as a gift. When I think about God's call in our life, He wants us to do our part also to finish the work in terms of becoming all that He wants us to be as a church. Because that's God's desire for us as well. We are to finish the work being confident of this, that He who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's my prayer. I pray that we will do our part to make this a healthy and holy church. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you. Thank you for your word that deals with all of these different areas of life. We thank you for the book of Second Corinthians that has been very profitable for our study. And I pray that you would continue to use it in our life, that we would never forget how important is your grace your mercy, your power, our need to walk with you and be dependent upon you in all things, to grow in Christ-likeness, to recognize that you are the one who makes us adequate for ministry, that you are the one whose strength is made perfect in our weakness, that you are the one who supplies our needs. And so, Father, today we ask you to cleanse our hearts and help us as individuals and as a church to be healthy and holy in your sight. Amen. Would you